Now, as Melinda comes to read the scripture this morning, um, it's a little odd, the timing, because I'm going to tell you the Reader's Digest, and it really is the Reader's Digest, condensed version of the story of Esther. But there is a sentence toward the end of what Melinda is going to read that is such a motivating factor, potentially for every one of us. But you're going to hear a few pieces of the story of Esther this morning. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And when Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued, issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Hathak went out and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a message for Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night, or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Holy wisdom, holy word. You ready? There are only two books in the Bible named after women. One is Esther, the other is? There are only two books in the Bible where God is never mentioned. One is Esther. What's the other one? This is... Oh, you... It's such an honor to be your pastor. <laughs> Song of Solomon is the other. And I'm going to stick close to my notes as I tell the story because otherwise I'll branch off and I don't have time to do that. Um, The story of Esther is one of the most poignant in all of Scripture, and it begins with the Jews in exile in Persia. What was Babylon is now Persia. The reason that they were exiled, at least what they believed, was as punishment for not adhering to God's law. And God allowed them to be taken into exile and lose their land. So you can imagine that kind of feeling of guilt around disobedience. Now Esther was a young and beautiful, intelligent, 
and was dedicated to her people, the Jews. And as the story begins, her parents have died, and she is living with her older cousin, Mordecai. Both are trying to stay true to their faith, to trust even the God they feel allowed them to be taken from their home. And now to set the stage, Xerxes I is king of Persia and has agreed to throw a lavish party for his subjects. But the purpose of that lavish party is but one thing, to show off his wife. Her name is Vashti. Vashti didn't want to go. And Vashti decided that she was going to refuse to attend the party that would put her on the spot. Now, Xerxes being Xerxes the king, young king, decided that that meant that she didn't deserve to be queen. And he deposes her and sends her off into exile. And because he's king and because he's young, he decides that what he's going to do in order to choose the next queen is to have a beauty pageant. So he has a beauty pageant. Now, this is where the story gets really long, but I'm going to condense it down a lot. He chooses Esther. (laughs) And then another huge long part of the story, which condenses down, is Esther had to be prepared to go before the king. But she does, and they fall in love, and they get married, and not to live happily ever after yet. This is where, if this was a melodrama, I would have all of you go, dun-dun-dun. Because now enters the evil Haman. And Haman was the number one man in the court of Xerxes. And the law said that any time Haman went out among the people, the people must bow before him because of his elevated state. And so he goes out among the people, but there is Mordecai. And Mordecai believes in the faith And that the law that they broke before they were exiled is still the law of the Jews. And you shall bow before no one but God. And so Haman walks by. Everybody else bows. Makes it real obvious that Mordecai did not bow. Makes Haman angry. That anger turns into passion. That passion turns into hatred not only to Mordecai, but if Mordecai the Jew wasn't going to bow, then no one who was Jewish was going to bow, and suddenly they become enemies of the state, and the next step for Haman was then they were worthy of annihilation. Kind of a broad step, in my opinion. But that is the story. Now, there was also a law, and by the way, Mordecai heard about all of this, and Mordecai had already been elevated some in the eyes of the Persian king because he found out about a plot to kill the king and had revealed that to Esther, who revealed it to, to Xerxes. And so Mordecai was elevated. Now, Mordecai finds out about Haman's desire to annihilate his own people. And what you heard Melinda read was some of the back and forth where finally Mordecai is able to communicate to Esther that her people are going to be annihilated and that she has a choice to make. The law said if you entered into the inner courtyard of the king without permission or without invitation, you could immediately be killed. 
and you heard what was said then. Esther decides after this statement to do this. But hear the statement again. Mordecai says, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, Esther, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time is this. Esther decides to take it on, and she walks into the inner courtyard where there on his throne sat the king, Xerxes. And he stared at her, and time went by, and you can just imagine how rapid her heart rate was, because she knew she could die any moment. But then slowly, and with authority, Xerxes extends the golden scepter to her to accept her in. And they plan together. And another party is thrown. What is it about young kings and parties? But another party is thrown, and this time it's Esther who throws this party. And she invites Haman and Xerxes to come to this party. And it is there at the party in this public arena that Esther shares the plot of Haman to kill all the Jews. Well, Xerxes had no idea about this. He is the king. Not only does he get angry, but then, then, Esther says, you may not be aware, but I and Mordecai and my family are all Jews. And then the anger shifts to a new level of passion, and Xerxes turns to Haman and has him instead sentenced to death, only to be replaced by Mordecai, who now steps in to that highest level of the court, and Esther remains queen. And this is where everyone lives happily ever after. It's an amazing story, and, and uh, one that's, I think, very familiar to us. Uh, I shared with First Service that about 35 years ago, my dad wrote a musical called Beauty Queen, based on the book of Esther. And I want to bring that back sometime. But here's here's some things that I think we can learn as we continue to explore women in the Bible that can and the attributes that can help us today. Here's number one. First, every single one of us is called to use our God-given influences to confront evil in any form. Every one of us is called by God to utilize our influence, whatever that influence may be, to confront evil in any form. And here's the deal. We have now what Esther did not have because we have the ultimate example of how that is to be done through Jesus. You remember back in the 80s when, you know, so many were wearing that bracelet, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Became this incredible national phenomenon. But I've always struggled with that because it's not just what Jesus would do. As we walk through our lives and we look around us, we need to see with the eyes of Christ. We need to hear with the ears of Christ. We need to confront with the passion of Christ. But that means first we need to know Christ. 
and know what that means. What would Jesus take on? What would he say? What would he do? What would he hear? And those are keys if we were to respond as Esther responded. Second, there are things over which each of us needs to have uncompromising adherence. We have a little yellow bus out in the narthex. And if you open your bulletins, you see a gold piece of paper. And on that gold piece of paper is a a list and an invitation to provide things for the children and the youth of Bellevue and the Bellevue School District who don't otherwise have the ability to have school supplies. And later, we're going to be filling backpacks with food that children in Bellevue can take home for the weekend because even at Taiyi, what we have are an incredible amount of our middle schoolers who if we don't provide them food for a weekend, they won't eat. And it's not that they don't like what their parents give them. It's because they can't afford to have that kind of food or any kind of food. Dorothy and I signed up for Saturday's Refuse to Abuse. And as you now know, that is one of my passions. I will never understand anyone who would harm a child. I will never understand that. And I will confront that as often as I can. And that is one of those places where I will have uncompromising adherence to the response that we need to have, that I need to have toward that kind of evil. And I don't mean just children. I mean adults as well. That's what I mean by uncompromising adherence to the evil that we see, that we take that on as Mordecai took it on and as Esther took it on. Number three, there are simply times in our lives where we are required to swallow our insecurities and be willing to sacrifice ourselves for a cause. It's too easy for us not to do that. But there will be times, there are times, including today, where we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves, move beyond our insecurities for a cause. Fourth, for us as Christians, we have to depend on the ultimate guide and power that guides us. The story of Jesus is in the Gospels and the power of God that flows through us. A few weeks ago at the common table, there were the four signs of the four words that occupy our vision. That we are growing in faith, love, health, and service. But above that was a bigger sign. And it said transformation. It's what we do. Transformation. It's what we do. And that sign and all all five of those are still in room 21 because we're going to deal with those tomorrow night at the core leadership team meeting. Confirmation is what we do, and we depend, or I'm sorry, transformation is what we do, and we depend on the guidance of God to do those things. But here's the tough one, and this is number five. Every one of us has some aspects of Haman inside us. And here's how you know whether or not you do. It's when we say sentences that begin with all, fill in the blank of some population of people, then are, and fill in some action that we believe. Here's, here's some examples of that. 
All homeless are lazy. All Muslims are evil and want to kill us. All Christians are judgmental hypocrites. All Asians are focused solely on raising brilliant children. All blacks are violent. All police officers are racial profiling racists. And even all politicians are self-centered power mongers. And by the way, I've heard all of those statements in the last week, somewhere throughout the world. I could add a few. All Democrats are. All Republicans are. (laughs) I grew up with this one. All blondes in Bellevue (laughs) are. Right? Not not yet. Sorry. I was just seeing the pans going, not yet. Uh, Coming really soon, though. All women are, all men are. And might there be other things that we can be doing to respond to this and to recognize some other things? And in thinking about all of that, what John just put up was a teaser for where I'm headed right now. And there are seven, seven levels of recognition, I think, for us as we look at this story and our role. First thing that we need to recognize is that we have power. Every single one of us has power. Every one of us. We all have power, and it's up to us as we partner with God to figure out how best to utilize that power and that influence. But we are called to utilize that power. Second, take time to recognize the needs around us. And here, Bellevue, Issaquah, Renton, this area, it's sometimes harder to see than it is in places like Thailand or even in south-central Seattle. But friends, the need is around us. Again, we need to look no farther than that little yellow bus out in the narthex and realizing that there are needs around us to, to take care of, to help, to feed, to allow the children and youth in this area to have opportunities that they would not otherwise have for not only school supplies, but for food. We need to recognize those with the eyes of Christ. Third, recognize that not only do you have power, and not only do you have influence, but you have the power to create transformation. You, you do have that power. In one or more of those need areas, you have power the power. Here's what I want to just pause there for a second. If we enter into the community with those kinds of eyes, the eyes, the ears, the heart of Christ, here's what will happen. Is we'll see a need or identify a need, and it is what has happened for me with abuse or domestic violence. Is we'll feel our blood pressure go up a bit. Or we'll feel our heart pound a little harder. Or we'll feel like it's, this is an area where maybe I can focus on this. Something will happen in us that will say, God may be calling me to answer this need. Recognize that. Recognize, number four, that you've been influenced by others and you don't have to go this into the fray, whatever that fray may be, without some experiences of others that have gone in there before you. 
and study them and examine them and talk with them. And then do number five, partner with them. Recognize that you never have to go this alone. You don't, ever. I will use an example again at this service because it was, I've asked the, the leaders and others in the church to, to help me see the bright spots that we've seen in the, in the past year. And one of those was Grace Boarding House in Thailand. Do you know that you built a boarding house? And that boarding house now has 25 to 30 children in it with a staff of four or five, depending on the time of year. And if you ever want to see pictures of that, just let me know. And then Kara's coming back at some point, and I've asked that she can share about some of that. You made a difference, a huge, life-changing, life-saving difference, because we were willing to partner with others like Panchai and with Kara and do something that has changed lives. Recognize, friends, that you are never in this alone. Whatever that fray or that call may be, look around you. And don't just look at this service. Look at first service. Then look beyond that into the community. And what becomes one voice singing this little light of mine becomes multiple voices ignited in this work. And it blazes forth in incredible ways. Recognize you don't have to ever go it alone. Number six, and this is a hard one for us. We all need to recognize that we have weaknesses. All of us do. And that in that recognition of the weaknesses, once we recognize it, we can overcome it. But we have to recognize it first. We have to name it first or allow even others to name it for and with us. We all have those. And if we recognize them, then even transformation can happen within us as we step to overcome those weaknesses. And finally, number seven, recognize all of those things that I've just talked about and then take on the action. Take it on. As Lisa sang and Robert played, the saying of an audience of one. We're not here to please others. We're here to please an audience of one, to be motivated, guided, supported, and encouraged by God, an audience of one. And by the way, there's not a more accurate statement for what a church is to be than transformation is what we do within ourselves, and then within the world around us. And so I leave you with a few questions. What is your current reality about where you are in any of this? What is it that you fear? What's preventing you or us from taking on the needed actions? And as I said, from there, once we answer those questions, we have the potential for transformation. Where are you being called What is the area where God is calling you to focus, even transform lives? And then this final question, which is on the screens. What is it that God has placed on your heart? Why is it that God has placed you in this church, in this community, in this position? And might God have placed you here for such a time as this? Might God 
have placed you here in this church, in this community, for such a time as this.